Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Dr. Jeffrey Wilhelm, a distinguished professor of English education and director of the Boise State Writing Project at Boise State University. Dr. Wilhelm, thank you for coming on the show. It's my great pleasure, Carly. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I asked Dr. Wilhelm to join us today to talk about some recent projects he's been working on. He recently co-authored the book, Fighting Fake News, Teaching Students to Identify and Interrogate Information Pollution. And that comes out next month, is that right? Three weeks from today. All right. And he's also working on a training for teachers that was put together and sponsored by the National Endowment for Humanities. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, to celebrate the 250th anniversary of our country, they're promoting uh, what they call towards a more perfect union grants. So we're teaching teachers and supporting teachers in how to incorporate what we're calling dispositions of democracy into the things they already teach every day. Empathic listening, evaluating evidence, and, and many other things that teachers have identified as skills and strategies and dispositions they think are necessary to the democratic project. Okay. So I'm definitely going to dive into more of each of those more with you later on, but will you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Boise State? Well, I am in my 40th year as a teacher. I taught middle school reading and English and high school German and English for 15 years. And then I went to the university where I've been a a researcher and have run a teacher leadership program as part of the National Writing Project. So the main writing project and now the Boise State Writing Project. I continue to get into schools and co-teach and do what's called fishbowl teaching each year. Uh, So I identify as a teacher and my job right now is really to support teachers in whatever way they need. And these are very challenging times for teachers. So I'm very pleased and gratified and privileged to be doing that kind of work. And most of your work, you're dealing with K-12 teachers, right? I actually, the National Writing Project is preschool through college. We even have adult educators. It's mostly geared to K through 12, but we have educators of all kinds and at all levels. Mm -hmm. And you said there are challenging times for teachers. Why is that? Well, COVID in particular, and the fact that kids, I think, have forgotten how to do school, uh, the virtual education, as valiantly as teachers pursued it, I think, held a lot of challenges. Cell phones, I think, are a very particular challenge. The MRA research shows that if you have a cell phone around and it dings, it's the same part of your brain that lights up as a heroin addict taking a hit. So you can't expect kids to learn if they've got a cell phone in their presence. Uh, and of course, people are very addicted and committed to their, their cell phones. Um, you know, those are two of the problems. Um, I think that teachers are asked to do more and more with less and less. Um, I think that, um, that there's many other challenges facing teachers. In Idaho, uh, the governor's new pay proposal is most welcome, but There's no dedicated funding for facilities, for instance, and we're still gonna have teachers who are lower paid than the states around us. And when you look at working conditions, Idaho teachers generally have working conditions that 
are much more challenging than those of surrounding states or other places in the country. So, and I do think that though most people support teachers, understand what they do, that there are many people who don't support teachers. And there are organizations like the Idaho Freedom Foundation and Liberty Moms who actually attack teachers. So it's, it's difficult to do the challenging work of teaching in the best of times. And in these times, I think there's a lot of additional challenges. Okay. So tell us about your new book, Fighting Fake News, which is about to come out. Who is this book for and why did you feel it needed to be written? Well, the book is primarily for elementary through college level instructors. However, we think it'd be of great interest to the general public as well. The reason we felt it was important to write was number one, culturally, you see how prevalent social media is and artificial intelligence. And of course, fake news has become a term of art in, in our society. And the, the stakes are very high. You certainly can't have a democracy without a fact-based worldview. Uh, Judge Amy Berman has said that from her bench. The historian Timothy Snyder has said, when you give up on establishing facts and truth, then tyranny certainly will follow. Um, Hans Rosling has made the point that you can't do disciplinary work or professional work or make the best personal decisions or family decisions or policy decisions without understanding facts and having a fact-based worldview. He says a fact-based worldview is like having a GPS. You know, it's way better for getting you where you want to go. And there's a lot of kids who have despaired of establishing facts. And there are teachers who have despaired of being able to teach kids to identify and interrogate information pollution. And so we felt it was necessary to look at the research from across the cognitive and learning sciences about why we're so susceptible. And it turns out that our minds evolved for survival. And that means that we have cognitive biases like confirmation bias, which confirms what we and our friends and our tribal group already believe. And it keeps us from seeing the evidence from the objective world that doesn't align with our facts. Well, that's a simple survival mechanism because your tribe back in time was necessary to your survival. Availability bias, the things that are most intense, uh, most emotionally charged, most frequent in your, in your world experience are what you believe. And you see only that among all the available information. Um, there's a set of over-dramatization biases, which means we, we see things at their most extreme and negative. Again, that's a survival mechanism. You know, you don't wanna underestimate that it might be a saber-toothed tiger in the bush. But as Daniel Kahneman, the famous cognitive scientist has said, system one thinking, which cognitive biases are all shortcuts of system one, is not very effective at dealing with the complex problems of the modern world. And he also says quite famously that system two, which is our logical, slow, reasoned thought, is notoriously lazy and wants system one to do all its work. So the book is to help teachers, help t students understand our susceptibilities. We call it kind of building 
a user manual for your mind to understand, you know, how do you think, what are the frailties and what are the dangers of being unaware of these things? One of the things we think is unique about our approach is we basically say it's on you as the reader. And so you have to be proactive in understanding your cognitive biases and controlling for them. So we have to be very proactive in understanding and controlling for our own cognitive biases. And then what we look at is how can we integrate this kind of instruction in every subject area, at every grade level, in every kind of unit. Before we jump into integrating it into instruction, I just want to back up here to a couple things you said. So you're talking about how our biases are linked to our drive for survival. So I get that with the over-dramatization bias. We kind of have to assume the worst and think it's a saber-toothed tiger. So the availability bias, um, how does that pertain to survival? Well, if things are occurring frequently in your environment, or they emotionally trigger you, or are especially intense, you pay special attention to it. But it can be a real misdirection. One of the activities I use with kids, I'll say, how many deaths have there been on commercial airlines over the last 20 years? How many deaths have there been in automobile crashes? Well, they hugely inflate the airline crashes because that's very triggering. And, and it's going to be front page news. And there's only been an average of one a year, one death a year on large commercial airlines and fewer than 20 if you count six to eight seaters in the last 20 years, you know, since 9-11, basically. Whereas automobile crashes, there's over 40,000 deaths a year, according to the National Transportation Board. And yet kids will glom on to the airplane and be scared of flying instead of being scared to get in the car, which is much more dangerous. So we pay more attention to what we're most afraid of. Which, what's most emotionally triggering. Yeah, which is mm -hmm. another way of saying that. And survivally, like historically, that makes sense because you have to pay attention to scary things to survive. You know, one thing that Kahneman says is that we've got a primordial brain trying to operate in the 21st century. And, you know, we, we, we're subject to all these things that evolved over time and are deeply, deeply embedded, embedded in our triune brain. So the only way really to deal with that is to activate what he calls system two, logical thought, and which takes a lot of energy. And, you know, Zeynep Tufeki is famous for saying that when it comes to deciding between facts and belonging, belonging always wins. Because back in the day, you needed your tribe to survive. If they ostracized you, you were gonna die. Mm -hmm. and, but the same thing happens in peer groups, political groups, community mm -hmm. groups, and it's to their detriment and to the detriment of our society because they don't have a fact-based worldview. But it's very, very hard and very emotionally difficult because you're violating all these biases that have a reason for being, and you're violating your tribal affiliations, you're violating your own identity. You know, Adam Grant, who wrote Think Again, said confirmation bias is fitting the facts to fit your story of yourself and your group, where reason thinking is bending your thought and your identity, your group affiliations to fit the facts. But that's a very, very heavy lift. 
So what you're trying to get people to do is understand how their biases work, how their brains work, and understand that inside all of us, there's this ongoing battle between our instinct and our survival mode and that primordial thinking and logic and reason. And we have to think consciously about it for logic to win. And yes. And that matters, you said earlier, because facts are essential to democracy. Can you revisit that a little bit? Why are facts essential to democracy, in your opinion? Well, let's just take the example of the January 6th insurrection. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about it. There's a lot of disinformation about it. But if we don't understand what happened and why it happened, then that kind of thing will happen again, as it did in Brazil. And it will happen again here. We need to very clearly identify what happened, why it happened, and how, in order to prepare ourselves to not have this happen again. Vaccinations are another example. There's a profound misunderstanding of how science works and how evidence works. My co-author, Michael, tells this story of how he went into a school the day Kobe Bryant died. And he said, what do you guys think of this? And all the boys said, oh, it was a murder. It was an assassination. And he goes, well, what makes you say that? And they all kind of smugly said, we've done our research, which means they read a Facebook page or a social media post. That's not research. Um, the latest Atlantic Monthly has a great article called something like Against the Eureka Vision of Progress. And they start off with Operation Warp Speed. And they say, wow, people think, what a success. They were able to create vaccinations in a matter of months. Not so. There was 200 years of documented, scientific, rigorous uh, experimentation with vaccines. 200 years prior to COVID. There was multiple years, decades of DNA sequencing research. There was decades of mRNA delivery system research. So even though all these things came together very quickly, to the to our minds, actually there's 200 years of research behind it. And so when someone says I've done my research because they read a website or a Facebook post, it's it demonstrates a profound misunderstanding, if not disrespect, for how science works. And we've seen how denying vaccine research is a threat to you, your family, our culture, schooling, the economy. Um, and I'm not saying that there isn't room to, to push back about these things, but you have to acknowledge the scientific agreement when you make a decision, if you want it to be best in the policy environment or for your family or for yourself. Okay. So then you were talking about how to integrate instruction on navigating misinformation into every grade level and unit. And I'm really curious about that because I could see this working well in an English class, history class, current events. Um, but what about science, math, the arts? How does it work into subjects like that? Well, we just did a science example yeah, about vaccinations. Yeah. So um, why not? There's great graphic novels about the history of vaccine development and the physiology of how vaccines work. You could... You could do a unit, an inquiry into how do we prepare for the next pandemic? And you could read some of those works so the kids have basic understanding. Then they could go out and, and look at post and decide 
What's credible? What's authoritative? What's based on evidence? Um, what's not? Do some lateral reading. What do most scientists agree upon? You know, it's interesting. Uh, you as a journalist will know there's many journalistic standards for putting something in an article. And you retract something if it's found not to be correct and you revise. That's how disciplines and communities of practice constitute knowledge. I think a primary thing we need to do in school is help kids understand how is knowledge constituted and develop respect for it and be able to understand when something doesn't fit those standards of constituting knowledge. And there's some great graphics of conspiracy theories and how they actually deviate from the constitution of knowledge. I want kids to understand that as well. So science is filled with information pollution. Uh, scientific discussions are filled with information pollution. Math, uh, there, there's so many ways of skewing data. Uh, a book I read in graduate school was lies, damn lies, and statistics. Because, you know, as a researcher, you know, there's so many ways to portray this. And I can, um, you know, noodle around with the display and representation of evidence to make it polluted. So all of these things, I, I think in any subject, in literature, we have unreliable narrators. Uh, in history, we got different historical accounts. You know, the whole idea of herstory is that the story we get told is to privilege the winner. And we never get to hear from women or marginalized population who are clearly part of history or from the losers. Um, one of the best units I ever did was on the American Revolution, looking at the British point of view and the Tory point of view, which we never consider in this in in this country, but was part of the conversation at the time. So tell me, I, I can see a lot of lessons for this at the secondary college level. What might an elementary lesson on navigating misinformation look like? Well, let's just um, take this example. When, when my daughters were in elementary school, there was a lot of illness in the school. And the teacher said, huh, let's ask the question, why is there so much illness in our school and, and is there something we could do about it? Well, it was so intriguing because the kids went around and found out that 28 of the 30 unit ventilators in the schools weren't fully operational. They found out that the chemicals for cleaning were stored right next to the cafeteria. Uh, you know, then they started getting into, uh, you know, what was being served in the cafeteria and why. And, these were second and third graders. Uh, they were they were going wild. And think what they were learning about health, what they were learning about chemicals, what they were learning about air quality. Um, and they actually wrote a letter to the school board and to the State Department of Public Instruction and got some funding to address some of these problems. So they were really becoming, as second and third graders, public intellectuals and, and agents of change. And... Uh, and they learned a tremendous amount doing it. And they also dealt with a certain amount of misinformation, like it's safe to store the chemicals next to the cafeteria because, or the unit ventilators don't have to be fully operational to do their job. And, and they just found by talking to experts and interviewing people from the university that a lot of that stuff wasn't true. And so they were learning to doubt and to question and read laterally and establish something that most credible sources would agree was true and proceed from that. Mm -hmm. 
So project-based learning, starting with a question and letting the kids explore and research to find their own answers. Well, to be more precise, project-based learning is a kind of guided inquiry learning. And so I would be promoting guided inquiry. Uh, typically, guided inquiry will result in a project, a social action, uh, an archival knowledge artifact or whatever. But yeah, I, I personally think that if you look at the last 40 years of research across the learning sciences, there's no doubt that everything should be reframed as inducting kids into how to inquire about how the world works. And you can do that through contended issues. Science is filled with contended issues. You know, textbooks are a big problem because they act like everything's already decided. Well, when I was a kid, Pluto was a planet and we memorized a mnemonic. You know, my very earthy mother, blah, 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 pizza. Well, now there's no more pizza. And people my age get upset about it. Unless they understand that's how science works. You get more data, you get better data collection like telescopes, uh, you define things differently and all of a sudden, Pluto's a planetoid. I fully expect Pluto to be reclassified as we learn more. That's just how science works. A lot of times people go, scientists don't know what they're talking about. They're always changing their mind. Yeah, they know what they're talking about and they demonstrate it because they're changing their mind based on the available data. So there's a real misunderstanding of science works, how journalism works, how any profession constitutes knowledge. And that's what I want kids inducted into. And you can do that by guiding them into an inquiry that's of great interest to them. And they're gonna learn about misinformation in those contexts. They're gonna learn why people think differently and what kinds of ways can be justified, but what actually because of cognitive biases. And that becomes what in education we call internally persuasive. You know, I can tell kids those things, but until they experience it and contend with it, they're not gonna be internally persuaded by it. And that's the real power of guided inquiry approaches is you're being apprenticed into expert thinking, knowing and doing in a way that will be totally compelling to you. And that's really what we're doing in this national demonstration site work with the NEH on promoting dispositions of democracy. It's the same thing. And finding fake news and discerning information pollution is, I think, a disposition of democracy and it's part of that project as well. So I was reading the book description and in it, it says that it's important for kids to learn to respond in ways that lead to wisdom rather than reactivity. So can you expand on that and tell us what's meant by that? Well, wisdom is a tricky thing, but it would certainly involve understanding your own personal story and why you believe, know, and think, and do as you do and how your personal history is influenced by that. It would involve sociological imagination. So being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and say, hmm, how might I think differently about this if I were raised as an indigenous person, if I was raised in more impoverished circumstances, if I lived in a different culture or a different part of the country. Um, that's a sign of wisdom that you understand that you're standing at a particular position and exercising a particular perspective that has value. However, there are other people standing in totally different positions and who have different perspectives that also have value. And there's a reason 
while you're standing where you are and they're standing where you are. And there may be a way to achieve deep understanding by conversing. John Milton wrote in Areopagitica that truth was never bested by a bad argument unless the arguments were not made. In our culture, a lot of arguments are, are made through social media, through disinformation, through uh, misinformation, but a lot of arguments aren't allowed to be heard. I was reading earlier today that there's been 283 state laws restricting what teachers can teach. And these are all things that are part of curricula. So experts have agreed these are actually health policy problems or personal health issues or, or whatever, uh, historical issues, and kids need to learn about them. And state legislatures are restricting them. That's a form of misinformation that I would call fake skepticism. When you repress something that experts agree is important to the health and vitality and understanding of, of students to operate as democratic citizens in our culture. So there are all these things going on that are very, very interesting. And the more consciously aware we are of them, the more, I think, mature and wise we are. Because there are other people with other points of view that also have value, but sometimes who you, you they're not credible. And you need to be able to go, I hear what you're saying, I respectfully disagree because. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about kind of a measured approach to this. Do you see reactivity as antithesis to wisdom? What do you mean by reactivity? Well, I just pulled it from your book description, but I don't know. I imagine it means hearing something and responding emotionally rather than logically. Yeah, I think that uh, we're largely emotional and irrational beings. You know, Daniel Kahneman estimates that 96% of all mental activity is what he calls system one or irrational. Um, so if we want to achieve wisdom, we have to activate system two. And that means controlling or bracketing out your reactions, which you're going to have. By the way, the cognitive science shows that when you get emotionally triggered, that lasts three seconds unless you continue to cultivate it. So if you stay angry at a spouse or whatever, that's because you're cultivating it. And you may as well say, huh, what good is this doing anybody? Okay, I'm not going to cultivate it. It'll disappear. You know, the research shows that. And that's one thing I think that our book tries to teach kids how to do, which is to keep your initial reactions categorically tentative and then do some exploration and activate system two and say, okay, um, how do I think about that now? And, and how can I justify knowing, thinking and doing in this way? Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea of keeping reactions tentative. Um, probably easier said than done in real time though. Oh, for certain. And that's why in our book we say, look, this is a heavy lift, but it's one we have to take on. You know, we don't think it's, we don't, we think democracy is at stake. Uh, certainly deep learning and transformational learning and a fact-based worldview is at stake. But so it has to be done. And as I said, it plays out in every subject area. So it needs every teacher in every school in every subject area integrating this kind of work into what they already have to do if we really want to have a democratic society or 
the most fully functioning scientific community and and the most aware public policy or whatever. Um, and that's going to mean keeping things categorically tentative and exploring and seeing where the evidence takes you. Uh, and it's going to take time and it's going to be messy. You know, success is never linear. It's always uh, a struggle. And but it's a struggle I think we need to take on. And our book is providing teachers with the tools they need to provide students with the tools so that they can do this work throughout a lifetime. So one thing I was curious about with your book, misinformation is spreading in more and more ways as technology advances. There's chat GPT that we recently talked about. There's these AI deep fakes. So do you think your book offers tools that can make it evergreen or do you think you'll have to keep putting out new additions to keep up? Well, what a great question. Um, you know, when you write a book, um, you, you want it to be archival. You want it to be evergreen. We think that the basic cognitive science about how our minds work is not going to be changing in our lifetimes. Uh, the ways to recognize and control for that, I think, will continue to be true. Um, we go through several chapters of uh, strategies that are tied into things that are always taught in school, like evidence-based reasoning and argument writing and understanding point of view, position and perspective, close reading. Um, you know, I think these things will continue to be taught. And I think the tools we're providing are basic tools that will remain powerful. However, are things going to change? Oh, yeah. Will the challenges change? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, when we wrote the book, Dolly was out. So the way of artificially using artificial intelligence to construct images and videos. But ChatGPT was not, you know. So uh, you write a book in a way that you hope is so transferable and so flexible that it will remain relevant. You know, and, and actually, as authors, you talk about that all the time. It is that example one that's going to make sense in 10 years, you know, or when things change, will this still be true? And you talk about that and you try to plan for it. But of course, the world's constantly changing and the world of disinformation and misinformation is constantly changing. And one of the things we said several times in the book, here's an example from today. This is you're going to have an example on the day you're reading this. And we think these tools are still going to work. Okay. So we know that misinformation has become harder to wade through. To what degree do you think teachers are already incorporating lessons on misinformation? And are you advocating for every teacher, every grade, everywhere to incorporate this in some little way? Well, that's exactly what we're advocating for. Uh, as I said earlier, th there's two major things that I think make our work unique because there are other great people who are doing this kind of work. And we think what we do that's unique is recognizing the role of the reader or the consumer and really focusing on them understanding themselves. The second thing is understanding how challenged teachers already are and how much they already have to do. So we're very careful in the book to say, you teach X, you know, you teach um, evidence and science. If you're a science teacher, you have to. If you are an English teacher, you're going to teach uh, analyzing evidence and using it to reason and, and arguments of interpretation. You have to do that. So how can you integrate 
this kind of work into that project in a way that costs you no extra time. And in fact, will enliven your classroom and deepen your kids' understanding about the stuff you already do. So we're, you know, time's a zero-sum game. Energy's a zero-sum game. So we're, we were really trying to say, how can we help you do the work you already do? But by adding, not really adding, but integrating and incorporating this. It's the same thing in our democracy building instruction project. Teachers are too busy. We, we're not asking them to do a unit on that <clears throat> or to add stuff to a unit. We're saying, how can you incorporate the evaluation of evidence, empathic listening, exercising sociological imagination into what you already do in a way that doesn't cost time, but it's gonna enliven your classroom. It's gonna make things more interesting for your kids. It's gonna make your instruction more uh, robust and internally persuasive. Mm -hmm. You said you recently participated in a webinar where you talked about your book. What initial feedback did you get from teachers? Well, this was with the News Literacy Project and it was yesterday to kick off News Literacy Week. And we had 1,500 teachers who participated. And, you know, the chat was just lighting up. And most people were saying things that made me think they're not doing this yet, but they're compelled by it. And that what they need are tools and models and examples of how to do it. Particularly primary grade teachers seem to have that vibe. There were people were saying, hey, I've done this and here's an example and, and all that. But most people were saying, wow, another thing to do. And what I was trying to say is, no, incorporate this in what you already do. And if it feels like an extra, it's worth doing. Uh, and the tools and models are in the book. And the News Literacy Project is another great resource to go to. Uh, they do a weekly post called The Sift about misinformation that kids are being exposed to. It keeps me hip to what the kids, I wouldn't know otherwise, because I'm not on TikTok, I'm not on Instagram, and I don't subscribe to the social media they do. And every time I bring this up, the students in school will go, oh yeah, you know, they've, they've been influenced by that. So there's great resources out there. The Stanford History Education Group, uh, the Civic Online Reasoning stuff they do, awesome. Uh, um, these are major characters in our book. We're like, we're not gonna do what they do, but use them because they do different stuff that's really important and really powerful. So the, the webinar went very well and was met with great enthusiasm. And it's clear some people are doing this, but most people at the webinar anyway are not, but want to. Okay. I wanna give a little bit of time to talk about the teacher training you're offering through NEH, and I believe you're doing that this summer. So can you just briefly tell us about that and what it entails? Yes, uh, I'm the director of the Boise State Writing Project. It's a teacher leadership program. Um, we applied for this NEH grant towards a more perfect union for democracy building instruction and got a grant. We actually have done it for a whole year now. And our first 30 teachers are completing their year in March. And we are offering several mini conferences in Coeur d'Alene in February, and then on March 4th in Boise, and then March 10th in Twin Falls and 11th in Rexburg. And the teachers in the project will be presenting about their work and strategies and units of instruction that they've developed to incorporate these dispositions of democracy. So they're, they're the ones who will be sharing uh, what they're doing. Um, we're recruiting a second cohort. 
we still have a few places left and we start that on April 22nd and we'll be doing the same kind of work. We'll do a, a summer institute and that will be to support teachers in developing instructional units or more likely to incorporate in existing instructional units work that would promote these different dispositions of democracy that teachers have identified. You know, what's interesting to me about this project, one of many interesting things, is that, you know, teachers enter the profession because of deeply held commitments and values and hopes for themselves and for uh, students and, and for the future and for our culture. And teachers are feeling more and more constrained by the kinds of laws I alluded to and other pressures from doing what helps them meet their deepest commitments. And one of the things that I've been most happy about the past work we've done this year is that teachers are telling us, wow, this is reviving me because now I see how to promote democracy, how to help my kids become their best possible selves, uh, how to assist them into their full flourishing of a human being. Because if you don't have a fact-based worldview, you can't. If you don't know how to converse with other people, you are not gonna have the deepest possible relationships. Um, and so they feel like it's getting them back to their deep commitments, even if it's through the back door or the, or the basement or whatever. Um, I don't care what door they go through. They don't have to do a unit that directly addresses what are the dispositions of democracy. I think it's often more powerful for the back door or side door. So that's one of the really uplifting things that's happened in the Institute is that teachers are reconnecting to their deep passions and purposes. So where can teachers sign up for to be a part of that cohort if they're interested? And where can people find your book? Well, the, the book is at Corwin Publishers. So um, I imagine if you just typed in Fighting Fake News plus Corwin Publishers, it would come up. I know they're having deals for the, the launch of the book. I think it's 30% off. As far as participating in our institute, you'd have to contact me and it's, and it is by invitation. Mm -hmm. So people would have to write me an email, detail their interest. I would discuss with them what's required and, uh, and then we'll invite people for the last few slots that we have. Okay. So if any teachers are interested, you could probably just Google Dr. Jeffrey Wilhelm, Boise State, yeah. and the email will come up. Right. And I'm, I'm at jwilhelm at boisestate.edu, which is easy as well. There you go. Okay. So I want to move into our the last segment of the podcast, which is the lightning round. Before we do that, do you want to add anything else about your training session for teachers or your book? I'll just say that the Boise State Writing Project's been around for 20 years. We usually do a fellowship program every summer. Um, and it's been, the National Writing Project has been designated by many think tanks like the Ford Foundation and the Carnegie Commission as the single most powerful professional development program in the history of North American education. And so we're very proud to be part of that tradition and to do the work that's necessary to support teachers in doing their very, very important work. Okay. So for the lightning round, I've got three questions. I ask these to every teacher guest who's on my show. And I just ask that you take a quick minute or two to respond to each. Are you ready? ready. All right. Question one, what's your favorite part about being a teacher? First of all, I want to say that I identify as a teacher, but I'm a university professor and I teach in schools 
as a guest, as a co-teacher, I'm not a school teacher. They have a way tougher job than me. And I recognize that. And I do whatever I can to support them. I identify as a teacher, but I know I'm not doing what they're doing every day, going in there and, and doing the really hard work in the trenches. My favorite thing right now is helping teachers to do that work because they don't get the support they need from the legislature, from the public, through funding. And so whatever I can do to help them do their all important work, that's what my favorite thing is. Okay. What has being a teacher slash professor taught you and what has been its greatest lesson? So I'm thinking of two instances. One, when I was a junior in high school and I had a teacher named Bill Strom, who I'm still friendly with. And he, I was always a good student and I always got great grades. And I got like a C in my first paper in AP English my junior year. And I went to him and I said, I, I, I don't understand this grade. He goes, are you here to learn? And I go, well, yeah, I actually wasn't. I was there to complain. He goes, all right, sit down. And he went through the paper with me step by step and explained to me things like that I've been talking about today. What constitutes good evidence? Uh, how do you reason about evidence to generate to a claim? How do you back that reasoning if you think someone's going to disagree with you? And it was like a, a, a light coming on in so many ways. I learned a lot about argumentation and about evidence, but that stuck with me to, to today. But I also learned if a teacher sits down with you and explains things in conversation patiently, that you can help students have breakthroughs. And I also learned I better come to learn. That better be my job. Not the grade, but I'm here to learn. Um, so I, I'll just end with that story, but I've had many others with teachers throughout the years. Yeah, I love that idea of a, a student coming to you with a concern about a grade and starting the conversation with the question, are you here to learn? All right, last question. What advice would you give a brand new first year teacher? It's going to get better. <laughs> I work with early career teachers. Uh, I, I've run a mentoring group for early career teachers for uh, several years. And, you know, they come and they, they're all struggling. And I'll say, look, this is typical. It's going to get better. Stick. Don't be making any decisions now. It, it's, it's something you learn to do and you learn how to handle all of the different demands. One of the things we do in those sessions is they have to tell us a gorilla, something that's bugging them, keeping them awake, really stressing them out. And then they find out that everybody else in the group has the same gorilla. It's not about them. And I'll tell them, I've been teaching 40 years. I got that gorilla too. Here's how I deal with it. Then we do gotchas. So something that you did that was a home run. It was, it was amazing. And, and they learn from each other. And one of the things they're not doing, they see the issues, they see the challenges, they see the problems. They don't see their successes. And that's because they're deeply committed and they want to be successful every day. And I go, you know what? Teaching is like baseball. You don't win all the games. You don't get a hit every time you go to bat. You get a hit three times out of 10, you're an all-star. You know, you win 60% of your games. You're going to the World Series and you're world champ. That's how teaching is. So don't set an impossible standard. Be part of a network, which is what the National Writing Project's for. It's what my mentoring groups are for. That's gonna support you and help you to see that you are making a difference and that you only have to win 
six of 10 and you're an all-star. I think that's great advice. I think a lot of teachers are out there are perfectionists because you want to do the absolute best for every kid every day. And it's hard to, to know that a lesson could have been better, but you're right. That's just how it is. Got to take focus on the successes too. I like that. All right, Dr. Wilhelm, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. We really appreciate it. It was my great pleasure. Thank you, Carly, for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. And don't forget to go to idahoeducationnews.org for all the latest. Have a great week.